Welcome to the Gospel Addict Podcast. I'm Greg Bryan. And I'm Jim Resky. We're gospel addicts because we believe the gospel of Jesus isn't just good news, it's the best news ever. We're addicted to the gospel because it doesn't just start us out in the Christian life, it is the Christian life. Join us as we look at the Bible through the lens of the gospel. Thanks so much for listening. Hey, you're listening to the Gospel Addict Podcast. Uh, I'm Greg Bryan. I'm joined with my co-host, Jim Reske, and it's just Jim and I tonight. Just want to give you some you know, exciting updates of things that have happened with us. I, I just recently returned from leading a group of people to the Holy Land. So I'm going to talk, Jim's going to interview me a little bit about that. And then, Jim, I wanted to start out with an, getting an update from you on the book that you're working on. No, thanks, Greg. First of all, great to be with you. Uh, thanks, everyone, for who's out there listening in. Um, yeah, so the book's been quite a journey. been working on it for a while now, a couple of years, and um, put together a manuscript last year. And I think I may have told our listeners this, that I got a manuscript together and started working with an editor who has published five Christian books himself and um, who really worked with me and went through things, uh, the, the draft of the fine-tooth comb, and, and not just like editing to make suggestions, but really reorganizing everything, reorganizing the thought flow, understanding who the target audience is, kind of the kind of discipline you have when you're really writing a book, not just writing out a stream of consciousness. Because um, when I started it out, Greg, you know, I'm just so, I'm so excited about the content, which is the gospel, which is what makes you and I gospel addicts, that I just had so much to write, and it's just getting it out was important. And then giving it to somebody who say, yeah, that's great, but let's really organize it like a book and put it together. Well, and because we might have people just listening for the very first time, can you talk about just the the topic of the book? Yeah, the basic top, topic of the book is the gospel gap. It's an illustration you and I talk about all the time, and it's a contrast of two different ways to live your Christian life. And um, you might think of it as outside-in transformation versus inside-out transformation. Um, uh, but but the basic notion is that you, if you want to draw a picture of the Christian life, you could do it by just drawing a simple graph of uh, holiness on the y-axis, with a vertical axis, and then time on the horizontal axis. And if you want to say, well, what does a Christian life look like? You would draw a diagonal line that starts at the bottom left and moves up to the top right. And if you stop there, of course, that looks like every other religion, because every religion is based on a set of rules you have to follow, which means over time, you become a better and better Jew or better and better Hindu, better, better Muslim or Buddhist, anything as a set of tenets, rules, principles, and that they will call holiness or righteousness or goodness or anything. And over time, you moved from the bottom left uh, to the upper right, you become better and better in that religion. And this view applied to Christianity is that the gospel uh, starts you off. It's a little cross in the bottom left corner of that illustration. Starts you off, gives you a clean slate, and then the rest is up to you. And spiritually, that would be mean your justification is by faith and by grace. But your sanctification, your Christian walk, how you grow in Christ, your Christian life, your Christian experience is all driven by you and your hard work and effort. And uh, I think, Greg, we talk about the ABCs. How do you put that when we talk about that? Well, for some people, the gospel is the ABCs of the Christian life, and then you move on to deeper, you know, doctrine. But really, what you and I believe with all our hearts is that the gospel is not the ABCs, it's the A to Z of the Christian life. It is the Christian life. You never move beyond it. It's just as important for Christians as for non-Christians. Um, and that, that changed my life because I, as a young Christian, I kind of fell into the trap of what you just shared of thinking that, you know, Christ got me, you know, my salvation was through the gospel, through what Christ did for me on the cross, paying for my sins. But when it comes to being a better Christian, it was all up to me and my hard work and effort. But with, that leads you to a lot of pride if you're successful. If it's successful. Yeah, if you're successful or sort of despair if you're not successful. And I can remember kind of feeling both those, um, um, feeling both those as, as a, a struggling Christian. And I 
you know, realized I kind of moved beyond the gospel. Yeah. And I needed to kind of return to the gospel. And that really, um, you know, through God's grace and, and teaching, teachings I was exposed to from, you know, both of us really appreciate the ministry of uh, Dr. Timothy Keller. That's right. That really kind of brought me back to, wait a minute, you know, grace is what saves me. The gospel is what saves me, but it's also the key to our spiritual growth and development. So you described that you described the one way. So quickly describe the, the new illustration. Yeah. And I think since you're kind of very similar to your personal experience, Greg, and this is before you and I met, I mean, my personal experience to my early thirties was just like yours and really getting burned down on it feeling, and I write about this in the book, but just feeling like this is just so hard. It's so hard when you think about your Christianity on a scale of one to 10 and you feel like you could never get above a five or maybe a six on a good day. Maybe I reach to a seven then a back to a three or two. And you talk about, you know, if you do get up the, uh, that ladder, you feel a little bit of pride. And in fact, you're if you're a spiritual leader and you have that view of the Christian life, you would say, well, absolutely, I want to use pride and fear as motivational tools, because the whole point is to move you up and to the right. And so, um, but you, you really burn out on it. And we got to the point where we were almost ready to walk away from the whole thing, feeling like it's, it's just too hard. And that's when we started, we lived in New York City, we attended Tim Keller's church and really started to hear the gospel in a totally different way. And, and it's really depicted in this thing I want to write about, which is this illustration to show how the gospel is operative for your whole Christian life. It's 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 the A to Z. You never, like you said a minute ago, you never leave the gospel. That's why we're gospel addicts. That's why I feel like, um, I felt like when it happened, when I really started to get a glimpse of that gospel, I was, I was born again already, but then I was born again again and felt like, I just can't stop talking about Jesus. That's why I love, I just really actually why we love, love doing this podcast uh, together. Uh, just to love talking about Jesus. And that's why we say, that's why the whole podcast is called gospel addicts because uh, we're, we're addicted to, to the gospel, to the good news of Jesus. Cause we think it's the best news ever. Best news ever. And I think people, you know, we're always stunned, right? When people don't take the offer, why would you not take this offer? You know, and I think part of it is because people look at Christianity like that single line. They say, wait, the, you're offering me the chance to move up, the, to apply myself with a lifetime of toil and hard work and effort to maybe please a God who's never satisfied. No, thanks. Or they're already living the Christian life. They're saying, I've kind of had it. Like, I'm always feeling bad and guilty. I never measure up. No, thanks. And when we when you get a glimpse of the real gospel, you say, taste and see that the Lord is good. Why wouldn't you take it? So... Um, Anyway, the contrast is looking at that. I'm sorry, you're going to say something? Well, I was just going to say, isn't a big part of the the book that you're writing uh, contrasting religion from the the gospel from religion, the difference between religion versus the gospel? Yeah, and I I think that we spent a lot of time actually on that first, the illustration we just talked about, because that is a religious way of thinking of your Christian life. That, you know, I obey, therefore I'm accepted. And I climb the ladder, maybe, maybe at the end of my Christian life. I, I'll bet you a lot of our listeners will resonate with this. If you At the end of your life, maybe you'll hear, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Aren't those words you want to hear? Won't your, won't your heart swell up with pride? Is everyone else behind you in line? Their spirits are crushed because they're not going to hear. But you, you've done better. You're, you're, you're a nine out of ten. We all come in. We, we rarely get people like you around here. <laughs> well done, thou good and faithful servant. Isn't that great? That's and that's supposed to be motivational, but it's crushing, right? It's, and it, that whole way of thinking about even that verse is driven because you're reading the Bible through that single line paradigm, which isn't right. It isn't the gospel. So, but anyway, we try to kind of treat all that in the book and then kind of shift to what you know sometimes call a double line paradigm or basically the gospel gap for short, which I think is a shorthand way of thinking about it. So going back to that verse, the well done, thou good and faithful uh, servant, what what do you think the gospel, looking at that through the lens of the gospel, what does that look like? Well, you know, because we talked about this before, Greg, but the servant in that verse isn't you. We read the Bible, read ourselves into it, and say, it's all about me. It's all about what I've got to do. And when God, when God is going to look at me at, at, the, at, the, at, the, at the judgment, he is going to look at me through the lens of everything Jesus has done and all my 
evil, rotten to the core, sinful self is going to, has been put on him and wiped away. And all his glorious righteousness has been put on me in the great exchange, right? Uh, that's the verse Isaiah 1. Though your sins are as scarlet, they will be white as snow. That's the great exchange. And in that, he's going to say, well done, thou good and faithful servant. But it's capital S servant because it's Jesus's record and not mine. Mm. That's All... also 2 Corinthians 5, 21. Exactly. God made him who had no sin to be sin um, for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Yeah. I don't know That's if I quoted true. that exactly right, but uh, it's. I think I got the, the gist of it. You did, um, there's just so many verses when you when you when you really understand what we're the shift. It's a massive shift, massive shift um, in thinking of your sanctification. This isn't your salvation. This is your sanctification. That's right. It's a massive shift, and when you start reading the Bible through this lens, you it's the the Bible just comes alive. I mean, there's verses like in First Corinthians chapter one, verse eighteen, which says, "For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing." But to us, to us as believers who are being saved, it's the power of God. That's right. I mean, right. and then, you you know, Peter writes, you know, grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus. Grow in grace. That's, right. That's exactly what you're talking about. What does it mean to grow in grace? It's inside out. It's not outside in. So often religion is outside in. It's like, you know, we, we do, 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 do all this stuff. But the gospel but is it's been is, D-O-N-E, it's done. It's been done, done for us through, that's through right. Christ, through the cross. So right. as you've been working on your book, and I know you've been working on it for quite some time, you're you're uh, reorganizing. Is there any um, anything you want to share like related to like some some cool, um, you know, ways that you've reorganized it or or yeah. Well, so actually right now, you just mentioned this, the, the, the word shift. I'm just finished, uh, polishing off a couple of chapters towards the middle of the book that really talked about this gospel shift, this paradigm shift, and the notion that it is a paradigm shift. You see the world through that lens, the single line lens, like every religion. And um, and if you read the Bible through the, that lens, a lot of things just don't make sense. A lot of things don't make sense. You say these, these Old Testament characters are supposed to be examples for us. They're supposed to be nines and eights and nines on the one to 10 scale, they're awful. They do all kinds of miserably bad things. I don't understand. It doesn't make any sense. And it's because you're using the wrong paradigm because you're using that single line paradigm to read it. And then the the people, the Bible is filled with stories of people who make the shift from the single line to the double line. So from a religious paradigm to a gospel paradigm and contrast, oh, sometimes in the same chapter with people who don't make the shift or refuse to make the shift or can't make the shift. Right. And um, anyway, I go, go into great detail about that. But this this contrast of like, and that's why Jesus says so many times, he uses metaphors of opening your eyes and healing a blind person so that they may see. And these people are blind in their sins, but they want to open their eyes. The opening your eyes in the gospel, and, and there are those, our listeners who are Christians will get this right away, right? Suddenly when you get the gospel, everything looks different. It's a paradigm shift. It's a, it's it, the lens through which you look at the world shifts completely, and you see everything differently, including all those old passages you read before that seem to be motivational stories for you to be just like them and work hard to climb up the ladder and turn your six into a seven and keep going. And now you say, oh, there these people are recipients of free grace, just like me. You know, they're lost in their sins, just like me, and God gave them His righteousness. So, anyway, that's what I've been working on recently, and. It's 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 coming together, and hope my hope is this year we can really get it out there and get some public in front of some publishers, and we'll see what happens. Have you been adding new content? Some of the content I have, uh, some of its reorganization stuff I've already written. The new content is trying to put it to uh, 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 understand in terms of Christian leaders and how they can use it, and then also in evangelism, how it can be used in evangelism, because a lot of the evangelical tools we use in the past are really kind of simple and fall short really. Um, and don't, I don't think they kind of make the always work with a modern audience. So trying to relate it and touch, have a touchdown where it can be used as a tool for evangelism. Um, that's some of the new content. Okay. How close do you feel like you are to finishing the project? You no, know, I like, like I, I got a day job. <laughs> right. So keep my, keep my job and pretty demanding job as, as it is. And, 
Um, it's so it's not like it takes that much time. It's it's the long gaps in between picking up and working on it. So, and I think I the last two weeks I've been just been on a, a tear, and it it's it's amazing when they, God puts this kind of thing in your heart. You it's it's like you have to get it out, you know. And I started off thinking I'm just going to put all this into a, a, a Microsoft Word document that my kids could read someday, and it feels so. It's like the it's just such a burden just to get it out and get it out somewhere and maybe it'll just be self-published on amazon that'll be enough you know i just want to we'll see but we'll see hopefully someone could benefit from it well i think you know you and i agree it's like an it's such an important thing and so many christians have just it's well the default setting of the human heart is towards hard work and performance it's, that's right religiosity yeah. and and that default setting is so you know, once we become a, a follower of Jesus, it it doesn't mean that that de default setting goes away. No, you know, it can still get tripped. We can still oh. fall back into it. Yeah, these examples. My um, uh, my wife and I were just talking about this. Go through Bible study materials that are supposedly you know Christian evangelical Bible study materials that still default to that single line way of thinking. Now that you're saved, here's a list of six tips and tricks you've got to do. You know, here's 10 steps, easy steps to fill the gap between you and God. You've got a lot of work to do. And these are things you have to do instead of seeing all those things in through a gospel lens. Right. And pulling you back to Jesus. But it's falling right back in the religiosity. And then the other thing I think and this is part of the evangelism thing is even as you're describing the gospel to people, they use that lens to, to hear everything you are saying. They hear everything right. you're saying through that lens. If you, so if you say, I am not trying to achieve anything on my own i'm a wretched sinner wretched poor and blind god gave me his righteousness i have no no righteousness on my own whatsoever you're describing the gospel in words the listener the non-christian listener especially today hears you through the single line lens they do they're applying that to you even if you're not describing a single line you're describing a something totally radically different they'll say oh they'll say things like oh yeah i i, I hear what you're saying you got it all figured out don't you you think you're so good and you're at the top of some line. You're trying to get me to, I hear it. You're trying to get me to climb, adopt your religion. And you say, no, I'm not. No, 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 no. I'm not. It's the gospel. It's radically different than all that. Yeah, 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 yeah. I know, I know, I know, I know. They, they've tuned you out already because they are hearing you through that. So I think that's, and, and the, this is this is the thing in a nutshell. Let's let's go to this part two of the podcast because I want, I want to hear about your trip. But the, the thing is, this whole, the reason I'm fired up about the book this little illustration and the way, you know, it's laid out, the way I've laid it out, the, the contrast between the single line and the double line makes the whole thing really crystal clear in about five minutes. You can describe mm. it as something in five, maybe, maybe two minutes, you know, it's and, and you can listen like I did to years and years of great preaching like Tim Keller and you could, it's all in there and you could get it. You can just read the Bible and get it. But the, 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 you know what the, the illustration does? In a minute, you say, that's it. It just clicks like, that's it. That's the contrast. It lays it out. And then because you have the paradigm in front of you graphically, you can then hear those things and say, ah, now it makes sense. And that's the, I think, unique contribution of the book. So stay tuned. Well, they say they say a picture is worth a thousand words, right? So Amen. Um, I love, I love, um, you know, in, in my ministry, I love sharing little illustrations, simple illustrations that that uh, illustrate profound truth, you know, the bridge to life. And this is one of those illustrations. I shared a form of it with you. You did. Because I was I was listening to Tim Keller and I was I was like, there's something different about this. There's something. And a, a couple of his talks just kind of came together to me. And I I uh, I started using this and sharing this with people and it's 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 exciting it's a it's a very very important um thing and um it, full attribution when you read when you read i think you saw an early draft but when uh, readers get a maybe someone gets a, a real book full att full attribution there'll be and it's either the forward or the first chapter i'll say like my good friend greg bryan showed me the basic bones of this illustration because <laughs> i did i i and i listened to keller for years already at that point saw the basic from you, an illustration of the two lines from you, um, and then kind of built it out from there. And I think then what I'm trying to draw out and add, can add to that. And by the way, and then and also for attribution, we've seen it published 
in a real basic form in a couple other books. And I put all that in the book uh, just, just to give credit where credit's due. But the unique contribution is contrasting it with a single line and then also understanding, well, where does my Christian growth fit in? How my life does change as a Christian. How does that, how, you know, I, I am supposed to become a stronger person. I am supposed to be sinning less, right? Does that, what does that mean? And how does that, how do I, you know, not fall into license and just say, well, fine, I'll do whatever I want or legalism, right? And and say, well, I got to follow a bunch of rules to follow. And in, in laying it out the way it's it, it's laid out is helps make that clear instantly and then draw those contrasts to say, oh, that's how it, all those elements of the Christian life fit in together. Yeah, well, one of the implications you brought up just a few minutes ago that I just think is is huge, and then we'll we'll wrap this up, uh, this this part of it, is the fact that when we share the gospel with people, they are, they, they just, you know, most um, people, they either put you in the camp of you're religious or you're irreligious. And I think a lot of us, um, the reason we're not effective in evangelism is we're, we're not good at explaining that we're not, we're not religious. We're not, you know, that, um, and we, if we could really understand the way people are listening to us and hearing some of the things we're saying, that they're 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 hearing them through that, putting us in those two categories. If we could develop tools that will help people see that no, we're we're not we're not um, we're not religious and we're not irreligious. We believe something totally different that's life changing. I think that is that is huge, and I think this this illustration that you have does that it it helps people understand that so i'm excited for you praying that you know you're able to f- finish this up and find a publisher and and get this out there and in the meantime we'll just continue to give bits and pieces through the podcast here yeah little uh drips and drabs and uh, help people kind of put it all together. So hopefully out out very soon. So we'll see. All right. Well, let's uh, shift the interview. Now you can interview me. Yeah. So thanks, Greg. I wanted to spend the rest of our time kind of interviewing you about this trip to Israel. And um, so uh, I think, you know, but just so everybody knows, I was really disappointed that my wife and I couldn't go with you this time. Hope we can go again in in, uh, uh, the next time you go or sometime in the future. Um, And I think, uh, as I understand, you've been there before, uh, years ago, because I remember seeing pictures of you as a younger guy in some of those sites, and then you way were, younger, and yeah, right, you had very different hairstyle, and you were uh, out there, and but but you had gone before with other people leading the trip, and then this was your chance to uh, lead the trip. Maybe you could spend just a second on that, and before I get to your day by day itinerary, I want to ask you about everything. But how how did it come about that you actually got a chance to lead this kind of trip? Well, this was my third trip to Israel. The first one, as you mentioned, happened when I was in my mid twenties, and I had the mullet hair hairstyle, and I was I, I looked very very different. I was actually went and spent three weeks in Israel with my seminary professor, uh, my Hebrew professor, and that was that was great. I mean, it was like a class, an on site class. I mean, we had homework and all kinds of preparation but since we were there for three weeks it was it was pretty cool all the places we were able to go about a year ago i went with our church with the pastor founding pastor of our church and he announced this was going to be his last trip and i said uh i think i would like to come back so he helped me kind of uh, uh get me launched to lead my own trip and so Essentially, I led a trip just this past January or February. Um, well, we started end of the very last day of January of 14 people to the Holy Land. And it was amazing. I mean, Jim, I can't. It's really hard for me to describe how it just makes the Bible come alive when you go to Israel and you get to go to all these places and even though I'd gone on almost, you could say the exact same trip I went the year before, I was so excited to go back. And even after experiencing, and, and now I'm even more excited to go back again. Really? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, 
it's just um there's something about it that is that is really special and it was a unique experience this this year because like you said i was kind of leading some devotionals at, at the various sites that's a real privilege to do that but it's just an an amazing amazing experience so so we this was like a 8 a 10 day trip essentially 8 days in the country and we spent we stayed at three different hotels. The first hotel, we only stay for one night because we're kind of on our way up to Galilee. We fly into Tel Aviv and we want to get up to Galilee. So we go just a little bit, you know, part of the way. And along the way on day one, we stop at Jaffa, which is, um, that's the name of the city, you know, today. But it actually, in the Bible, it's the, it's the town of Joppa. And are you familiar with, have you heard that name Joppa before? Joppa is the one that's associated with Jonah. Jonah. Yeah. That's the, the seaport that he goes to when he's like running away from the Lord. So we actually go to that seaport and it's the coolest thing. I mean, here you're walking around and I mean, somewhat of a modern it's not really, it's hard to describe. It's like, it's, it's stone buildings, which are very, very old, but yet it's a very modern, you know, city cars are driving all, all around It's Yeah. We were at this um, ancient seaport called Joppa, which is the, 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 the place where Jonah boarded a ship to try to run away from the Lord. So at one point I read part of J Jonah chapter one, to the group. And then we just kind of discuss what it's like to, to think that here we are in, in, in a very, the very place that the Bible talks about. And by the way, I should, I should put this in context because one of the reasons I wanted to go to Israel, even like over 30 years ago was because I had an English professor in college who did not like Christians and she took advantage several times during the semester I had her just slamming the Bible, just basically making comments that it was made up, that it's fictional, none of it's true. And so that that's you know that that made an impression on me. It didn't shake my faith, but it made me want to go to Israel for that first time. Really? And really? I think even even to this day, like it's one of the reasons I'm excited to to go back and to take people. The thing for me now is like I I'm also sad that you weren't able to go. I want to take my friends there because mm -hmm. it's just such a it's it's a hard to explain experience. It just changes the way you read the Bible forever. You know, Greg, I want to I want to go through some of these cities and their towns like almost play by play with you. We'll take some time to kind of explore that in the spiritual lessons, but just in what you're saying right now, the way that teacher was saying it's all just fairy tales and made up. I think, you know, as a Christian, sometimes you read the Bible and it talks about this place and that place and that place. And as you don't know the place, you kind of skip over it. So they stopped at this place and yeah, yeah, yeah. You don't, it's a, a name that's in maybe a different language like Hebrew. You don't know, you've got to gloss over it. But I remember like in, you know, the study that you and I are in looking at things like, for example, in the book of Acts, by the way, it's so geographical. And so much of the Bible is so anchored in real geography. So if you look at like Paul's journeys, he'll say, I went to this place and that place. Then the boat put into this place. We stopped at the harbor of that place. And they're all real places. Yes. Not, it's not just like, and I think when you're, I think of it sometimes, I think maybe I'm still guilty of this, Greg. You still read it like a kid's fairy tale book. Like it's, you know, Jesus born in a manger in Bethlehem in a far, far place in a galaxy far, far away. Like, right. you know, it's not a real town in a real right. place. And then you also think that those places don't exist anymore or you can't, yeah. you know, they, you know, they've been long destroyed and some of them have. But, um, you know, Joppa, I mean, that that is, you know, Jonah is like thousands of years old, you know, I mean, yeah. uh, uh, several thousand years when when that happened with Jonah but that same place that same uh city Joppa is mentioned in Acts chapter 10 and i just want to read it says at Caesarea there was a man named Cornelius a centurion in what was known as the Italian regiment he and all his family were devout and god fearing he gave generously to those in need and prayed to god regularly one day about 3 in the afternoon he had a vision and he distinctly saw an angel of God who came to him and said, Cornelius. 
Cornelius stared at him in fear. What is it, Lord? He asked. The angel answered, your prayers and your gifts to the poor have come up as a memorial offering before God. Now send men to Joppa. Okay, so send men to Joppa to bring back a man named Simon, who is called Peter. He is staying with Simon the Tanner, whose house is by the sea. Now here's, here's, here's the coolest thing. They actually think that they know we, we might, and, and some of these sites are, you know, authentic sites, which means we know that this is where it took place. And some are, you know, maybe less certain. And this yeah. may be one of the less certain ones, but there's there's a place in Joppa that our guide took us to. And it's right by the sea, just like the Bible describes it. It might be Simon the Tanner's house. Hmm. And this is the same house that Peter was staying at who this angel told Cornelius in, in the town of Caesarea to send for him. We're literally standing outside the door of this, this house. Yeah. And yeah. because it's, because it's, you know, for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years has been identified as Simon, the Tanner's house. It actually says Simon, the Tanner on top of it. Okay. But even if it's not his house, if that's not the exact house, what you don't, what you come to realize is, think about how close you are to what his, where his real house was. Anyway, that's right. Maybe it's the house it, next door. It could right? be you're in the neighborhood, right? And when Simon it, Peter walked, right? And just like you were just saying, you know, you read through these. When you read the Bible, you skip over a lot of these names and stuff because they don't mean anything to you. But right. if if you go to Joppa. And you go to Simon the Tanner's house, you'll never read Acts chapter 10 the same way. Because, yeah. and plus, you can picture it. You can actually picture how his house was right on the sea because you can see the sea behind it and, and hear the waves. And you can think about him being a tanner. So he worked with unclean animals. And then mm. you you put you start picturing, like, okay, so Peter was already he was staying with a guy with that was dealing with unclean animals. So the gospel was already working in his in his life because some of the biases he grew up with he he was setting aside because of his because of the impact Jesus had on him wow i never thought of that never thought of that before but i, I was going i want to ask you standing there like outside the house or in the, in the doorway or whatever that must make that passage come alive to you in a way you've never thought of before right i mean it's got to feel so real to you it, it does. I mean, it 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 just makes you so ex excited. Like, I can't wait to go back there, and I hope I get the opportunity to go there with you and and say, look, where it's you know, I mean, I can remember this year when I read that passage. Like, I was, I mean, inside my heart, I was jumping up and down. I don't think I was literally jumping up and down, but I was like, we're in Joppa, we're in Joppa, we're you know, soak it in. Like, you're actually in Joppa right now real close to where this took place. So you can start envisioning, and this is what I love about the Bible is there's so much, it's so historically accurate. It's unbelievable. Yeah, yeah. So I'm going to jump ahead and tell you that before the next- Before you do, like, okay. before you do, I just, because we were talking about the book before and it's talking about people that made the shift and didn't make the shift and writing about, or seeing the Bible in the Holy Light because this the illustration. Uh, I just was polishing off a chapter on uh, on Jonah. Um, and write about how he uh, he actually never did make the shift uh, to see it because I don't want to go back into detail about now in great detail, but um, I, I just was meditating. So writing about the book of Jonah not too long ago uh, this week, and uh, I can imagine having if you're if you're there at Joppa, how much more that would just come alive to you because it feels so real when your feet have actually walked or their feet walked. Yeah, you can actually like think about Jonah coming to this city and how he's running away from God and he's and you can see the ships you could you, you know you can picture ships and you can see evidence that this was a major port. Yeah. You know, ancient port, like an ancient port, not not a you know new port. Right. And right. you could just picture the ships being there and him jumping on the ship and all that happening it's just it's just unbelievable but then yeah. <laughs> here's another thing the next day so we're heading up and we're going through uh Caesarea and um there's another interesting uh passage 
that um, really comes to life. And it's again in the book of Acts, it's in Acts chapter 12. And um, we go to these ancient ruins from Herod, um, from Herod's time. Um, and we go to this place that um, this kind of um, amphitheater that Herod built. And it's exactly the place where in Acts chapter 12, in verses 20 to 24, and I'll just read it real quick. It talks about, oh, I'll just start in verse 21. On, on the appointed day, Herod, wearing his royal robes, sat on his throne and delivered a public address to the people. They shouted, this is the voice of a God, not a man. Immediately, because Herod did not give praise to God, an angel of the Lord struck him down, and he was eaten by worms and died. Now, I mean, that's a kind of obscure passage, but the, oh, I the, remember cool, it. the cool thing about it is we actually know where that takes took place, and and we actually go to the auditorium, and we can we know the spot where where Herod probably was when all this, and you can just picture you know, hundreds of people around him shouting this, you know, that he's, you know, a God. And you get to see this, his architecture is just amazing. I mean, he he was extravagant buildings. Yeah. And we see the ruins of those buildings. But this, this amphitheater is intact. I mean, you actually walk and you can sit in it. And you can you can see the, the spot, the very spot where, where this event took place. Wow, wow. Hey, Greg, were a lot of the ruins like intact like that? Like you're describing an amphitheater where we actually sit in the seats. Or were some of them just some, you know, hard to understand, hard to say, some rocks? You say, yeah, that's supposed to be the house of somebody you can't really picture. Were a lot of them really like in pretty good shape or pretty, you know, fully formed like an amphitheater that you could very. Well, I think one of the cool things that I think one of the cool things about this experience and specifically this trip that that uh, we take people on is that it's varied. Like you see, you can see sort of what you're talking about, where they're just now like uncovering stuff, like and they're current, trying to like figure out. Dig. Yeah, like, yeah, like Magdala, for example, the the town of Mary. Actually, Mary Magdala is her last name is not necessarily Magdala. She's Mary of Magdala. She was oh, really? from the town of Magdala. Yeah, she was from the town of Magdala. There's a whole town that they discovered because they were building a hotel and then they came across, they found a synagogue there and it's probably a synagogue that Jesus taught in. When we go to that site, I read the passage in Luke chapter eight, you know, where it talked about how these women were following Jesus and supporting him with uh, out of their own means. And there's some, some wealthy women listed there, but Mary of Magdala is mentioned uh, Mary Magdalene is mentioned uh, as one of those women who he cast out seven demons. Right. And so again, that is like, they just recently discovered that it is just amazing. And, and you can just, you know, that Jesus was in that, was there in that town. Another interesting place that we went to, and I'm going to jump. I mean, there's so many. Well, don't skip Nazareth. Did you go to Nazareth? We did go to Nazareth. Did you go to the Nazareth? Is supposedly the, the the precipice where they're going to throw Jesus off, and he goes back to preach there, the, to his hometown. And at first, they like him a lot. Then they get really angry with him because he starts talking about their sin. They're going to throw him off a cliff. Yeah, see that part? Did you? Yeah, we. I mean, we saw that from a distance. But the cool thing about Nazareth is just that you get a feel for what a small town Nazareth was, and how. If you remember the conversation in John chapter one between Philip and Nathaniel, yeah, um, it says the next day Jesus des decided to leave for Galilee. Finding Philip, he said, "Follow me." Philip, like Andrew and Peter, was from the town of Bethsaida. Philip found Nathaniel and told him, "Hey, we found the one Moses wrote about in the law, and about whom the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph." And then you remember what Nathaniel says, Nazareth. That's right. Right. And anything good come from there? Nathaniel <laughs> asks, come and see. Well, part of the reason he said that is because Nazareth was such a small town. And, and it still is kind of a small town. 
Um, and so you really get, you get a feel for like, yeah, I mean, it was just, he was from this, like, t he grew up in this kind of tiny, tiny town and, uh, that nobody, you know, but then, but then listen to this. It says when Jesus saw Nathaniel approaching, he said to him, here is truly an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. Well, how do you know me? Nathaniel asked. Jesus said, I saw you while you were sitting under the fig tree before Philip called you. Have you ever wondered what, what that meant when he said, yeah, I sure. saw you under the fig tree? What was happening when he said, I mean, what was he doing under the fig tree? Right. And there's lots well, of interpretations of that or speculation. First of all, fig trees, you see them all over Israel. And yeah. so, again, the language of the Bible, like we read it. I don't have any fig trees in my yard. Do you have any in your yard? No. <laughs> Probably not. But... But you can see these these fig trees are just around, you know. But the phrase, I saw you under a fig tree, it turns out is like an idiom that meant it's an idiom of a idiom of a person who is studying the messianic passages about the Messiah. Really? Yeah. So that's why that's why he has such a dramatic. So one of the guys who went on the trip with me is a doctor from Youngstown. And he, when, when I read this passage, he brought that up and the tour guide, she had never heard that, but then hmm. we did, um, we did some research and it turns out that it was, it was kind of a common idiom of a person that was studying specifically the passages in the Jewish Bible about the Messiah. Interesting. A little bit like the Ethiopian eunuch was doing when he was going in the book of Acts and another right. passage. Right. I'd be trying to find desperately to find the Messiah, understand the Messiah. I'm sure it was common people searching like crazy to find out, understand the Messiah when he was coming and that's the signs why, of it coming. In. Right. So that's why in the next verse, Nathaniel says, he declares, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Yeah. That's why he went he went from saying Nazareth, how can anything good come from there? Yeah. To saying you are the son of God. Right. You know. So why did why was the response so dramatic? It was because um when Jesus said that to him, I always thought it that like he was sitting under the fig tree and like, you know, I don't know what he was doing under the fig tree, but it was like Jesus said, I I see, you know, I saw you, I saw what you did there, I saw what you, you know. Yeah, like you're doing something wrong there, and I saw right. everything you did. Uh, right, like I. Caught but it you turns out, it turns out he was, you know, he he basically is, Jesus is saying, I know you've been studying the scriptures about the Messiah. Yeah, and I and I I, I see you doing that, and that's wow. that's what that's why I'm calling you to follow me. Wow. You know? So and then you know Jesus says, "You believe because I said I saw you under the fig tree. You will see greater things than that." Very truly, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. That's right. Which recently I brought that up when I was talking about Jacob and how Jacob saw a ladder that a stairway that came started from heaven and came to earth. The idea that uh, um, we don't we can't build a ladder up to God, but God has to come down to us. But here Jesus expounds on that and says, "I am the ladder." That's um, right. You you know I am I am the way the bridge God. the connection the bridge between heaven and earth right yeah he's the only way yeah so so that was no Nazareth okay that's great that's great I was just um, I, I'm glad to hear your thoughts on Nazareth I do remember we were studying it together looking at how people in Judea I can see if I get this right but we are around Jerusalem they look down the nose at people on Galilee like a little bit farther north. But the Galileans themselves needed someone to look for them to look down their nose at, and that was Nazareth. So you think about any any community of people that you look down your nose at. Within that community of people, they also need something to look, someone to look down their nose at, some backwater place that they think is the lowest, lowest, lower than them. Yeah, and by and the way, when 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 he's referred to as Jesus of Nazareth, the other thing to remember is that was actually they were actually intentionally trying to discount him because he yeah, wasn't wow. jesus from nazareth he was jesus from bethlehem well right right he was he born was jesus from bethlehem why didn't they call him jesus from bethlehem suburban, because, because that would that would Jerusalem. that would put him in line that would put connect him to those messianic passages 
that the Savior is going to come out of Bethlehem. So they intentionally called him Jesus of Nazareth um, as a way to be like, this guy's not, you know, he's nothing special. He's from Nazareth. Well, that's, and one of them says, search the scriptures, no prophet comes out of Galilee, right? I mean, they're... Right. uh, Part of the the, the, the biblical narrative that puts the look down their nose at the Galileans. Right. But uh, he was right. He wasn't from Nazareth. He was from from Bethlehem, suburban Jerusalem. Right. So um, yeah. higher status than Nazareth, but uh, fulfilling the biblical prophecies, even more importantly, that the Messiah is going to come from Bethlehem. Yeah. Wow. OK, so that's really that's all really great stuff, Greg. We're just on what day two or three, I think. I know. I know. So um, about the Sea of Galilee, what was that like? I mean, it's I, I've seen pictures. It seems f- like a bigger sea than. Oh, yeah, it, that's it one of my favorite. That's one of my favorite places. I mean, like I'm excited to. Uh, it's just I don't know. It's such a special place because of um, all that took place there. So much of Jesus's ministry happened around Galilee, around the Sea of Galilee, and so one of one of the coolest things that I'm even looking forward to next year, Lord willing, if planning on going back next year is going out on a boat on the Sea of Galilee with a group. Hmm. And then we, you know, we, um, the Sea of Galilee is probably eight miles wide and 13 miles long. So okay. it's actually a lake. It's a freshwater lake. Some of the scriptures call it the Lake of Gennesaret. Okay. But, but it's also, I should mention that the day before we went out on the lake, the lake had a storm. Like it was, really? it was crazy, crazy wind and rain, um, like horizontal rain happening the day before we went out on the lake. And so I actually talked to some guy in the hotel, same hotel we were staying at, who went out on the lake in the storm. In a boat? And, and he said it was, it was, it was, it was nuts. He said the waves were, were, the, the boat was just, you know, constantly going up and down and we were kind of laughing about it because he, he, he was like, it was, you know, I was, I was scared. And I was like, he just wanted to experience a storm on the sea of Galilee as a, well, they, they just took the group out. Like, I mean, I don't know. I'm sure there's some conditions where they would actually say it's not safe to take the group out, but they took it out. It was a scheduled tour. It was a scheduled tour. Like (laughs) that could have been us. That could have been us. Right. But we were the next day. And fortunately for us, it was like, very calm, like calm. And, and, and so again, you don't, you know, you read these stories of how Jesus stilled the the storm and how, um, you know, the waves, they think they're going to drown and it's hard to picture it until you're there. And you can see that one day, you know, the day before we were on the sea of Galilee, there were storms and crazy waves. The next day it was like calm as glass. And, uh, but one of my favorite things to do on that is to read the passage where, you know, Jesus is walking on the water and then Peter's in the boat and, and Peter says, Hey, if it's you, you know, tell me to come out on the water. And so Peter starts walking on the water. And so I shared like seven lessons from Peter walking on the water. Really? Yeah. Yeah. You want to hear what they are? Yeah, I do. Yeah. I'll just, I'll just, I'll just briefly mention them. And we didn't read the passage, but I think most people understand. If you want to read the passage, it's in Matthew chapters, chapter 14, verses 22 to 33. So the seven lessons, the first one is that we need to look look for Jesus and keep looking to Jesus. Yeah. We need to look for Jesus, but then keep looking to Jesus. The idea that we, you know, when P- Peter took his eyes off of Jesus, he started to sink. Mm-hmm. So and and it kind of goes along with being gospel addicts. We need to keep looking at Jesus. Amen. We need, to, we need to keep, you know, we don't just look at him, find him, and then stop looking at him. Right. So second one is when Jesus commands you, you obey him. Mm. So you know, he's Jesus commanded him and told him to come come out to get out of the boat, and Peter did that. The third lesson is faith is simply taking the next step. What we don't focus on is that. Peter did walk on the water. Yeah, amazing. He actually did walk on the water. I mean, he <laughs> exactly. made a couple he made a couple good steps, right? Right. 
Right. And then he took his eyes off Jesus and he started to sink. And that's the fourth lesson is that fear will sink you. Mm. Fear will sink you. And the reason he got fearful is because he took his eyes off Jesus. Yeah. And then the fifth lesson, and these all kind of overlap, is that Jesus saves you from many things. Hmm. You know? And I think that if if you and I reflect on our Christian life, we will say that Jesus saved us from many things. And so in the, in that story, you know, let's assume that at this point, Peter is a follower of Jesus and, you know, he's his he has salvation. Jesus reached down when he was sinking. Jesus saved him again. Yeah. He saved him physically, you know, from drowning, but he also saves him spiritually. Right. So I think that the lesson there is that how many, how we need to take time to reflect of, reflect on all the different ways Jesus has saved us. I mean, you could say, you know, maybe you had a, you, you almost got married to another girl and that girl Absolutely. would have just ruined your life. Absolutely. You know, right. and you, so you right. can, so you can be like, Jesus saved me from that. Yeah. Yeah. You know? Actually, it's funny because Tim Keller talks about that sometimes as uh, that exact circumstance. Yeah, but you get and all that, kinds of ways. You're right, Greg. All kinds of ways that Jesus is saving you. Even though you're saved, you're you're eternally, but He's saving you from all kinds of things. And and praise the Lord, He saves saves all of us from really bad, horrific decisions we might otherwise make. So, right. And so then the sixth lesson is that a little faith is better than no faith. Hmm. You know, we we struggle with like, well, I don't have enough faith to do that. Well, yeah. You don't have to have a lot of faith. You just have to have a little faith. Yeah. And then the final lesson is that you can choose to worry or worship. And at the end of that passage, you know, Peter worships him. You can worry about the waves and every and all your surroundings, all the things happening around you, or you can just worship, worship God. So anyway, sharing, you know, a devotional like that on the Sea of Galilee is an incredible experience. I mean, it's just hard to describe, you know, it's just, we're out there all by ourselves. It just makes the Bible come alive. So that's one of my, that's one of my highlights. Yeah. That's gotta be incredible, both for you as a, a leader of the kind of study and for people like listening and meditating on those passages and thinking about it being right there where all these things actually happen. Yes. Yeah. So there's so much, I mean, we, 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 we visited so many different places. Um, another highlight for me was going to the Jordan river and baptizing people in the Jordan yeah, tell river. Me about that. You told me, you started telling me about that, but how, how did that come about? What, what happened there? We asked my group, if any, anybody wants to be baptized, like maybe a renewal of your baptism vows. And it turned out that four people from my group wanted to be baptized, and two of them had never been baptized before. Oh, wow. Yeah, two, two, a couple from our church, actually, wow. had never been baptized before. So it was a great honor. Again, if you're going to get baptized for the first time, what an amazing place to get baptized oh, yeah. in the Jordan River. Yeah. You know, so they have a a place that pilgrims go and they have it all set up for us, you know, for, for these baptism, we did like a little worship service beforehand. We sang amazing grace. We, I read the passage where Jesus was baptized by John. And uh, if you remember like John's like, you know, kind of like, I don't want why, you know, I, you should baptize me. I shouldn't baptize you. But then, yeah. Jesus says, no, you, you need to do it to fulfill all righteousness. And so I talked, I, I shared a devotional about that, like, you know, four, four reasons why Jesus was baptized by John. And so I talked about how, you know, it was an affirmation of John's ministry for Jesus to be baptized by him. It mm -hmm. also signaled the start of Jesus's own ministry. That's right. But then the biggest reason is that to identify with sinners. And so I really uh -huh. kind of emphasize that point that baptism is a is a picture of of our salvation. D dying death and resurrection. Yeah. So anyway, 
at the end of that experience, and that was a that was a great experience. Climbing out, I was walking up the steps to go change because I'm like soaking wet, obviously. And I this couple comes up to me and they're like strangers. And they say, uh, hey, do you know an, a pastor? And I was like, well, I'm a pastor. And they're <laughs> like, well, would you baptize us? I look around. I'm like, sure, why not? And and uh, so, of course, I wanted to hear their story. And, you know, if they I wanted to hear their faith story and make sure that they were true believers. And and right, they, right. they were they were solid. Um, the, the husband was originally from India. They uh, are a married couple from Arizona. So. Long story short, I, uh, I, I, I got to baptize two strangers. That's so cool. The the tour guide that took us, you know, that she she by the way is the the secret sauce of this whole trip because she's been leading tours for like forty years and she lives in Israel, and so she's just like a constant, almost like a running encyclopedia. So all. Throughout the day, she's sharing different things um, about where we're at, details. She's answering questions. She just makes the trip like totally um, worth it. In fact, I I continue to learn from her the more I'm around her. Wow. So of just like the h- historical background and different things. But that really struck her because she she's like, you know, Greg, I've been leading lots of tours. In fact, she was she was a tour guide for Tim LaHaye. If you like years and years ago, she used to be his his kind of his special tour guide. Oh wow! And she said that most often she's she was impressed that I would baptize those two people. Um, and I was like, why wouldn't I do that? Like you know, but I can understand people that lead bigger groups. They they there's logistical reasons why they wouldn't have time to do it, or you know, um, yeah. Then we also go to and there's so many places we go. There's no way we're going to mention them all. But we go to the place called Engedi, um, which is really cool. It's like a waterfall, and it's really close to where David. Remember when in First Samuel twenty four, where David flees from Saul? Yeah, and then he has a chance to kill Saul because yeah, Saul case, is, right? went into yeah Saul went into a cave to use the bathroom, and David crawls up and cuts his robe. And then David feels, was already hiding in that very cave, right? And David was in that cave. And uh, then David feels guilty that he even cut his robe. And uh, but anyway, so we go to that place in Getty and we and I was able to read the story and uh, we were able to just like share kind of our different thoughts. And again, you kind of you can see the caves, you can see uh, the um, you can you can imagine what it was like, you know, for David and Saul both to be there and and for that experience. But, and of course, we went to Masada, we went to Qumran and saw the caves where the Dead Sea Scrolls were were found and s- swam in the Dead Sea, which is one of my favorite things to do, too, because it's the What's lowest. That like? Oh, man, it's hard to describe. It's 10 times saltier than the ocean. So it's almost um, you can float on your stomach, basically. It's just the weirdest experience. It's supposed to be really healthy for your your skin and stuff. Yeah. I love it every time. I'm like I'm almost like running down to the beach to uh, to to get in there and, and make the most. I was getting nervous that day actually because our time was getting shorter and shorter, and I was like, oh man, if we don't, I'm, I'm going to be so disappointed if we don't get that chance to go down there. And I hope you get to experience it. But it's the lowest lowest place on earth the lowest place on earth and it's the saltiest body of water on earth. And I want to be sensitive to our time here, Jim. We're, we're, I want to hear uh, one more, one more thing. I want to hear about the Mount of Olives. The Mount of Olives. Yeah. I think in the whole trip, I was, I was yeah. just, your first time about the going up there and the, um, the itinerary, that's just one thing I was really looking forward to. We are in uh, kind of. The Mount of Olives, like, the day after we get into Jerusalem, we get into Jerusalem on the e- like in the evening. We drive into Jerusalem and we stop at Mount Scopus, which is a popular place where you can oversee the whole city. And we read one of the Psalms of Ascent there and um, say a prayer for you know Jerusalem, pray for the peace of Jerusalem. But then the next morning, 
we go to the Mount of Olives. And the Mount of Olives is a really cool place. Obviously, Jesus did a lot of teaching there. But for me, it's the Garden of Gethsemane that is the is the most. Oh, um, wow. You went to the Garden of Gethsemane, too? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, we actually, there's two Garden of Gethsemanes. There's a public one that is open to everybody. And then there's a private garden that you can rent out. And um, as part of our tour, we rent that private garden for an hour. And so we had the whole garden to ourselves and you can, so I would, I read the passage about, you know, the, you know, the prayers Yeah, when Jesus was in the garden of Gethsemane and they, the disciples couldn't stay awake. Right. And then, um, then I kind of just sent us all out, encouraged people to just, you know, spend time in prayer and, and meditation. And you can walk around this garden, there's places you can sit but you really, and some of the trees and the, the olive trees in the Garden of Gethsemane, they say might be 2,000 years old. Oh, my goodness. Like they're, the, they're yeah, they're, they're, they're definitely um, very close to 2,000 years old. So they could be the original trees Wow. that were there during the time of Christ. Wow. But just going, being there... And we kind of walk, we start at the top of the Mount of Olives and we make our descent down kind of the way Jesus did when he mourns over Jerusalem. I don't know if you remember that passage. I do. He does that from the Mount of Olives? That's the triumphal entry. He does that from the Mount of Olives. So we kind of walk that path and it takes us down to the Garden of Gethsemane. And uh, I mean, it's just a... Definitely one of the highlights, and then then the whole the whole trip kind of caps off with um, going to the Garden Tomb, which oh. could could be the actual tomb that Jesus was buried in, and it's real close to Golgotha where Jesus was crucified. And there's two there's two potential locations where that happened, and you can and we get to see both of them. One of them, the church is built over it called the Church of the Holy Sepulcher. Another one is literally a bus stop, which I think is the more likely location. And it's real close to this garden tomb. But in the in, in the garden tomb, we um we we had our own like little room, almost like the upper room, and we were able to like, you know, read the passages about the resurrection and talk about um the importance of the resurrection and and sing songs and and we just had this great like sharing time wait inside the tomb we we actually do get to go in you do get to go in the tomb yeah Um, but yeah no the inside the tomb it's very small so only a few people can get in there at one time but you can see and and whether or not it's the exact tomb nobody knows but it's certainly it's it makes a lot of sense that it could be because of how close it is to the to the to where Jesus was crucified, and that the way the tomb is set up and the way it's described in the Bible, it it, it very well could be the the actual tomb. But if it's not, you get an idea of exactly what kind of what it was like, how Jesus would have been laying there, and how you could go in and see, and how you know the different accounts. Again, they just kind of come alive because you get the experience it yeah jim i mean i want to go back i'm i'm actually planning i'm in the final planning stages of nailing down the next year's trip i think it's going to be january 8th through the 17th in 2024 hmm, okay we'll keep our so, list posted i guess as your time's kind of firm up and yeah that but well, it's just so cool, Greg, and I think uh, we can kind of maybe wrap up with that. But just as you're describing these things, I'm thinking how, again, how it connects the geography, the things you've read about in the Bible, and with actually being there. Just the last story you're telling about how the tomb and what it's like, and how people would have poked their head. I'm thinking about the women who went there, saw uh, Jesus was not there, and Mary meets Jesus in the garden. Then they run and tell the disciples. All those things are physical things that happen in real space and time. And you can't, if you're there, you see it, you say, oh, this is what it would have been like to stand here and then run to where the disciples are and 
put that together in a real way that you can't unless you kind of go there and see it for yourself. So thanks for sharing this whole, this, all these details, Greg. It's just fantastic. Oh, you're welcome. And I would encourage all of our listeners, if they get the opportunity to visit the Holy Land, to do it. I believe it will only strengthen your faith in Jesus. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Gospel Addict Podcast. Feel free to contact us via email at gospeladdictpodcast at gmail.com. Stay tuned for our next episode. And remember, on your worst days, you're never beyond the reach of God's grace. And on your best days, you're never beyond the need of God's grace. See you next time.